He was in the projectionist booth of the Tampa Theater, taking photos during what up until that point of the day had been a fairly routine investigation. But while he was repositioning some of his equipment, he felt a very solid double tap on his shoulder. The tap was not unlike any other tap someone might experience when a colleague wanted to get your attention. But he was still surprised by the gesture. After all, the only other person who had joined him in the small projectionist booth was not only in front of him, but far across the narrow room. Always the skeptic, he tried to determine what could have caused the sensation. There didn't seem to be anything that could have fallen off a shelf, and he was certain he didn't back into anything that could have felt like a finger poking into his shoulder. He never did determine what, exactly, had caused the sensation of what felt like someone trying to get his attention. That was until the marketing director of the Tampa Theater informed Jeremy Reddick, the director of Genesis Paranormal Services, that a double tap to the shoulder is just par for the course in the projectionist booth ever since beloved projectionist Foster Fink Finley passed away in 1965. I'm Steve Blanchard. Welcome to Phantom History. After 91 years of continuous operation, the Tampa Theater finally underwent a massive multi-million dollar renovation in 2017. But, sticking with its long tradition, the theater remained open to patrons and its staff continuously hosted events and offered tours, even while construction was continuing all around them. The theater, which originally opened its doors in 1926, has never ceased operation and has had a haunted reputation for an incredibly long time. In fact, theater marketing director Jill Witecki proudly proclaims the theater as Tampa, Florida's most haunted building. Tampa Theater opened on October 15, 1926, as one of the most elaborate movie palaces that had been built in the country up to that point. Um, back in the 20s, movie palaces were a relatively new architectural style because movies were a relatively new art form. And so cities were throwing up movie palaces as fast as they could, all funded by the major motion picture studios. So there was tons of money, there was tons of competition amongst the architects who were building them. And for us, we were built by an architect named John Eberson out of Chicago who uh, among the various styles that he dabbled in, pioneered a style he called the atmospheric. And that's what Tampa Theater is, that illusion of a night sky with stars overhead, the feeling that you're outside in the Mediterranean courtyard were um, what Eberson meant when he created an atmospheric theater. So. Years later, um, we faced the same fate that a lot of historic movie palaces did in the 50s and 60s, that they were being torn down. They were all sitting on prime downtown real estate. They were no longer part of the studio system. There wasn't the money to keep them up, and they weren't turning a profit on their own. So a lot of movie palaces were torn down in that era. We were lucky to have survived. And in the early 70s, we were rescued by the city of Tampa. So today, we are owned by the city. We are operated and programmed by a 501c3 called the Tampa Theater Foundation. And uh, we open our doors about 600 times a year. So we remain a movie palace. That's most of our programming is film. We do some live performances on what very limited stage we have. 
some special events here and there. And around this time of year, we start talking about our ghost tours because we are also regarded as the most haunted building in Tampa, which is a reputation we enjoy. Despite a fairly well-documented history and more than nine decades of continuous operation, many of the entities haunting the building had their identities lost to the evolution of entertainment and veiled behind the passage of time. However, Jill says that frenzy of construction in 2017 actually helped shed some light on the identities of some of its paranormal residents, specifically the identity of a long-since-departed manager that let some visiting guests know that he still calls the historic theater home. He is, it seems, only one of many in a cast of paranormal characters that seem perfectly content to spend the afterlife in the beautiful and ornate movie palace. But of course, anytime you start tearing into a historic building and doing that kind of work, it tends to stir up whatever activity is already occurring in the building. And we definitely saw that because um, two Octobers ago was was the heart of the restoration work. We had crews in the building all the time and we were giving tours in and around what they were working on and had probably one of the most active years we've had in a long time. Fortunately for the theater, there hasn't been any indication that its spiritual inhabitants are hostile. Forceful maybe, but not hostile. When Jeremy encountered the projectionist the theater staff affectionately calls Fink, he didn't feel any ill will at all, just surprise. I was standing up here in this room, and right inside the doorway, I was taking some, some camera shots with a full-spectrum camera. And as I was moving the tripod, I had a very distinct double tap on my shoulder. I know what a double tap feels like, but I still question everything. So I stopped, I looked around. The first thing I saw was this, uh, this thing draping over the, uh, the spotlight, this drape or cover, or whatever you call it. And I knew there was a cabinet behind me and sometimes there's stuff on the cabinet. So in my head, I was like, all right, something's draping down the cabinet. I turned, there's nothing on the cabinet. So I'm standing in that spot, just, okay, did I feel a double tap? My partner that was up here at the time, he had what you would call, I'm sure you've heard of him, like a K2 meter or an EMF sensor that lights up when you check the EMF. He brought this, it's a hybrid device that has a couple of different things in it, but he, he brought it over to me because up here it's completely flat. Unless, of course, you get it to the next to the instruments, you'll get a, a small reading. But it's mostly flat up here, like a, a, a zero. And he brought it over to me and he held it to my chest and it lit up full tilt. And we were, I was like, what? And he pulled it back, it, it, it went away. He brought it back to my chest. He walked around me and it was like this space of energy that was right where I was standing. You take it to the floor, it would go away. You take it up high, it would go away. It was a self-contained, just spike of electromagnetic energy. And it lasted for, I stepped out of the space where it still remained for about a minute and a half and then it just disappeared. Now is that a paranormal phenomenon? I, but it was definitely something I couldn't explain. The crazy thing was, I didn't know that was a claim that people were being tapped up here. And, and Jill was down with another group in the main auditorium. And I went down, I told her what had happened. She goes, oh, that's something that happens up there. I was like, oh. So that's the best form of validation. As Jill told him, Jeremy isn't the only person who has encountered Fink since he passed away in the 1960s. Modern-day projectionists and guests who sit in the balcony have all shared stories of their encounters with Foster Finley, who many say is as in kind in death as he was in life. 
Fink was a nickname. Foster Finley was our projectionist here at Tampa Theater from 1930 to 1965. And at the time, one of his relatives, and we have conflicting sources, that it was either his father or his uncle uh, was the manager here, O.G. Finley. And so O.G. hired, uh, who we believe was his son, uh, Foster, to run the projection booth. And he did so six days a week for 35 years. So... Every day, you know, we, as you noticed coming up here, we don't have a, a, an elevator that comes to the booth or anywhere else. So Fink would have to pick up the film cans down in the lobby whenever they would arrive, make that climb that we all made up here to the projection booth. And because he was here till 1965, we still run into people pretty regularly that knew him, saw him, worked with him, could tell us a little bit about him as a person. Uh, so what we know is that he was a relatively slight man, uh, that he would most days drink a cup of coffee and smoke a cigarette as he was coming up to the booth. And then when he got here, you may have seen the little bathroom when we came in up here in the booth. He would have his morning shave up here in the bathroom and then dress in a three-piece suit that he kept here for work. Now, Tampa Theater did open with air conditioning, even in 1926, but when you're in the highest point in the building, it gets hot up here, and when you run the projectors, it gets even hotter. So the fact that he was dressing in a three-piece suit to do a job that didn't interact with any of our patrons, he was up here by himself, um, what we've learned about him was that that spoke to how much he respected the building, that he loved Tampa Theater, he loved working here, and he felt it was important to present himself as such. He did not die in the building. Um, he actually collapsed here in the booth, and his co-projectionist, Bill, took him home where he died a couple of weeks later. Um, he had been diagnosed with cancer previous to that and kept working even after the diagnosis. So whether it was a heart attack, whether it was complications, um, it was sudden, but not really. You know, his, his health had been suffering. But ever since uh, his death in 1965, every projectionist we've ever had has had experiences up in this booth that they attribute to Fick. Um, among them are coming in through that heavy metal door, and as they go to pull the door closed behind them, it feels like somebody's pulling on the other side, trying to open the door again. Um, taps on the shoulder, especially when we were projecting 35 millimeter. You notice the two projectors up here. And of course, when you were projecting reel to reel, you would put reel one on one projector, reel two on the second projector. So in every film, about every 20 minutes, you would see those little pops and crackles up in the corner. Well, that was the visual cue for the projectionist to switch from one reel to the other. So that moment of changeover is an intense moment for a projectionist. You would have to be looking out the window, looking for those visual cues and be ready to make the switch. And our projectionists would report feeling that double tap on the shoulder right at that moment that they were trying to focus on the screen. And of course, most of them work up here by themselves. So if you're trying to concentrate and you're alone in a room and somebody taps you on the shoulder, that's going to break that concentration for you. Uh, but it isn't just our projectionists who feel think up here. We also get a lot of reports from audience members sitting out in the balcony underneath the projection booth that they smell coffee that they smell cigarette smoke, um, and most often that they smell lilac. And for the longest time, we couldn't figure out what lilac signified or what that might be coming from until a guest on a tour suggested to us that the popular aftershave of Fink's time was lilac vegetal, a powdered lilac scent. 
And so we figure what we are probably smelling is Fink having his morning shave up here every morning. Um, so for a long time, I just, you know, being kind of a dabbler in this kind of thing and, and knowing as much as I've been able to learn through a lot of books and TV shows, I kind of assumed that Fink might be residual, that we were just getting that, that energy that had worn a path for 35 years, was continuing to do so even after his death. But between the tapping and then the REM pod uh, experience in the back room over there, um, Fink does interact with people here and, and uh, likes gadgets. He likes gear. Um, so again, it won't surprise me if you run into some issues with your recording, um, because every time we bring a new piece of equipment up to the balcony or into the projection booth, he seems to like to mess with it. Foster Finley may be the most well-known spirit residing within the Tampa theater, but he certainly isn't alone. Multiple paranormal investigations have identified other spirits, and one experience in particular showed Jeremy just how active this building really is. Every location is an ongoing case of documentation, and you know, we've had a reputable um, sensitive in here that we've used in the past who, um, once the organ started playing, she said it was like they all just started coming out of nowhere. Yeah, she said they're at least 20 to 25. Some, you know, a number that she couldn't really count, but she just gave a number. And, um, you know, that, that experience, just that, that whole sense of all these entities or energies coming out, you know, for the organ, I mean, that really speaks volumes about this place. Jeremy and Jill both put a lot of faith into what the medium shared with them that day and both would be content with that information as confirmation of the building's spiritual activity. But Jill has even more concrete evidence of the spirits of Tampa Theater. When she first came on board at the theater, a co-worker shared with her the various ghost stories that prevail throughout the building. One such story involved the sound of jingling keys near the manager's office on the second floor above the lobby. The story they associated with it was that of Joe the janitor, trying to unlock the manager's office so he could clean it. But Jill admits that there is no evidence of a janitor by that name, and while it made for good storytelling, she was never comfortable with sharing the tale with guests. Interestingly, however, it was an actual experience with tour guests that helped her determine the true identity of the spirit that jingles the keys near the manager's office. And it all involved a phone app called Ghost Radar. On the phone app, you've got what looks like a radar screen and, and little blips will, will pop up on the radar around you. You are the center of the radar and if it senses, uh, if the app senses a change in the electromagnetic magnetic field around you, it'll show up as a blip on the radar. Then across the top of your screen, it will pop up words. And if you've got your volume turned up, it'll say the words out loud. So everybody was walking around with their little ghost radar apps around the theater. And at the end of the tour, this couple came up to me who had been all in on the app and they were all over the building and using it and talking about what they were seeing. And they came up to me after the tour and said, okay, who's Paul? And I said, I, I don't know. And they said, okay, well, we got the name Paul several times throughout the building. And so we started talking to Paul and we asked Paul uh, who he was and the word that came up was manager. And we asked him what he managed and the word that came up was everything. 
So I chuckled because we are a small team here and I understand the feeling like you're in charge of everything. Um, but so I filed that away and they said, okay, but you don't know who that is? And I said, well, no, you know, we've got a 93 year history. Of course, we've probably had a manager named Paul at some point, but I don't know who it is. I'll do some research. And they said, okay, you know, and I promptly forgot about it. Fast forward uh, probably more than a year and we got a phone call from uh, an art gallery in Dallas that had gone to auction and had bought a lot at the auction. And one of the items in the lot was a photo album. And the front of the photo album was stamped Tampa Theater. So they Googled us and found out that we still existed. And what was in this photo album seemed to be original prints from the 30s of all kinds of promotional events that had happened in the theater. So down in the lobby, um, there were displays of tires, displays of radios, um, opening nights of films that had big elaborate sets that were set up. Um, and, and all of these photos, most of them we had never seen before. I mean, there's a ton of photos out there of Tampa Theater, but these in particular were ones we had not seen before. So we were able to reacquire the album and it came to live at the theater and it sits in a box on my bookshelf and it has sat there for a long time. Well, coming into uh, one ghost season, I had pulled the album out to scan some of the photos in it for, for some other project I, I was working on and noticed for the first time that not only was Tampa Theater on the cover of the album, but there was a name stamped in the corner. And the name stamped in the corner of the album was Paul Short, Managing Director. So then I had a name from which to start doing some research and found out that Paul Short had been the manager here. Um, he is actually in some of the other photos that we had of the theater. His name was written at the bottom of these other photos that we had just never paid attention to it because there are so many photos, so much stuff is written on them. But Paul Short was in these photos. That would have been his office as the managing director. And he would have indeed been in charge of everything if he was in charge of all the things in this album. Even that would have been enough. I would have been happy to have stopped the story there and been like, yep, it's Paul Short. We know it's Paul. The next year, or that, that fall, I guess, um, we were doing a late night lights off paranormal investigation with the public. Jeremy and his team were here. They had brought a bunch of equipment into the building. And one of the pieces of equipment they bought brought was an actual Opalus device, not your phone app, but a real one. And it, it's a little box with an antenna and words come out of it. You know, you hear kind of a, a scratchy noise all the time. And then sometimes a word will come out. So we had left the obelisk at the top of the stairs um, on a little side table, given that we had had that experience uh, in that part of the building. And so I had the group of, of guests up there and I start telling them the story. And I was starting just like I did here with the Joe, the janitor and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I knew that wasn't the right person. And the obelisk device says, Paul, as I'm telling the story. And so I again, kind of chuckled. And I was like, yes, Paul, we know, you know, don't, don't ruin the ending. Let me finish the story. And it said the name about four more times while I was telling the story. So not only am I pretty confident that Paul is there, um, that he might be a little bit type A, he's still trying to be in charge of everything. He's still trying to make sure that we tell his story correctly. Um, but it, it was so exciting for me to, to finally have a little bit of closure on the story of, and be confident in the story I was telling that this is actually who we were talking about and that we're, we were reflecting his story accurately 
because um, obviously he wants it told. <laughs> There's a, he's given us enough uh, that he wants it told and wants to be known for who he is. As with the story of Foster Findlay, the story of Tampa Theater's spirits doesn't end with Paul Short. In fact, there is a long list of entities that remain in the downtown Tampa landmark. There's Robert Lanier, the ticket taker who died in the lobby, the unidentified woman in white that roams the second floor balcony just above the lobby. Then there's the vaudeville trickster who enjoys bothering performers in the subterranean dressing room. And finally, the man in the fedora who was commonly spotted in his favorite seat on the main floor. Jill and Jeremy share more about these entities and the investigations surrounding them in part two of this interview coming soon on Phantom History. Each spirit has its own story and its own message. But one thing remains constant. The spirits seem to want to be in the Tampa Theater. And for Jeremy, that makes perfect sense. If you were somehow in a place, afterlife, you'd want to know. You'd want others to know that you were there. You'd try and reach out if you could. Um, you know, as far as the experiences that we have here, at the end of the day, like Jill said, there's a history here. And whether you're coming to see a movie or see a show, everyone who walks that door gets to, to be a part of that history. I mean, you just experience the theater to come in here and sit in its seats and look at all the decor and appreciate that. Uh, the spirits are an integral part of that. The energy that comes with that, that preserves this place, it's a theory. When, uh, when you're looking at a haunted location, that's actually a theory. You go into an old, decrepit place that's falling apart, and you think, oh, that's creepy, it's probably haunted. But believe it or not, the most haunted places are the well-preserved places that are held together, that aren't decrepit, that aren't falling apart, because there's something else there that's maintaining and keeping it together. Thank you to Jill Witecki of the Tampa Theater and Jeremy Reddick of Genesis Paranormal Services for their participation in this interview. Hear more about their experiences and the stories behind even more spirits that haunt the Tampa Theater in the next episode of Phantom History. For more information on the Tampa Theater, visit tampatheater.org. That's theater with an R-E. And to learn more about Genesis Paranormal Services, look them up on Facebook. Phantom History is written, produced, and edited by me, Steve Blanchard. Music for this episode is provided by Shane Ivers. For photos of the theater and of this actual interview, visit phantomhistory.com or follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And please leave me a review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. If you have a haunted location you would like to see featured on a future podcast, email podcast at phantomhistory.com. And as always, thank you for listening.